this water is for the entire state of California. It is the Keystone Project in the 40s that created the large uh, corporate farming in the desert and makes California rich. This water makes it rich. It covers up our homeland. It displaced us. It gave us nowhere to live. And it took our salmon away and gave the salmon nowhere to live. Some people see it just as a recreational area. Yeah, they don't know where it comes from and they don't know basically anything about water. Most people, surprisingly enough, know only that left handle is hot and the right handle is cold. That's Winnemum Wintu Chief Colleen Sisk. She's looking at Shasta Lake, reflecting on what it represents to her people. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, we continue the special series following Chief Colleen and the Winnemum Wintu as they challenge efforts to raise the Shasta Dam. The Winnemum Wintu are not alone in their fight to protect water for the salmon. A little later in the program, we meet a member of the Lumi Nation, Daryl Hilaire, who shares how a new documentary, A Sacred Obligation, is raising awareness and bringing together what he calls the Salmon People. But first, this fifth installment in A Prayer for Salmon. Here's producer Judy Silber. Chief Colleen wants the whole state of California to wake up, to understand we need to protect our water. She also wants justice. She wants the salmon back. We're going to take you on the run for salmon, a Winnemum Wintu ceremony that is calling salmon back to waters above Shasta Dam. The run follows the migration path of salmon for hundreds of miles. It will conclude above this lake, but it starts far south of here, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Can I grab you just for a minute? Uh-huh. Sorry, I know you're probably... Just tell me where we are mm-hmm. and what we're doing. Sure. We are at Segorite, one of the ancient village sites, the older village sites of my ancestors. This is Karina Gould, spokesperson for the Confederate villages of Lashawn, Ohlone, and a strong ally of the Winnemum Wintu. We have always been here. We're what is now called Vallejo, California, right along the Carquina Strait. We stand on ground that is now a county park and look out on the wide San Francisco Bay. 200 years ago, these waters teemed with migrating salmon. And it was a great place for trading because people would come down the waters, um, would trade, we would have ceremony here. There were a couple of shell mounds that were here. Over the next few days, Carino will lead Wintu, indigenous allies, and other supporters across the territory of her people. By acting as a local escort across these Ohlone and Bay Miwok lands, Karina and the Wintu are following the protocol of their ancestors. So there's this story that, that I know about protocol when people come to your land that they actually ask permission to cross, whether it's to come and get medicine or if it's to come and uh, to trade or to come and visit relatives. But they stand outside in a respectful way and wait for someone to come and get them and welcome them there. 
Like Karina's lesson about protocol, the run for salmon relies on ancestral wisdom that, that we all carry with us in our blood. And it's everyone's responsibility to um, make sure that these prayers are done and that these songs are sung. We have to remember, Judy, that the run for salmon is just one of countless ways that Indigenous peoples have tried to effectuate change in their world. Here's Lila June Johnston again. She's an Indigenous scholar who's helping to guide us throughout this series. There's a long history of Native activism in this country, right? Well, yes, I think I have a problem with the word activist only or activism because I kind of think of what Winona LaDuc said. She said, why does wanting clean water make me an activist? <laughs> I mean, ever since 1492... Uh, we, we've been engaged in, in actions to, to simply persevere as a people. So, I mean, you have the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, where indigenous peoples literally kicked out the Spanish crown from the state of New Mexico for decades. Can you tell us about some of the more recent attempts to bring about change? Of course. I mean, it doesn't just happen in the past. Ever since the 1900s, we've been entering a new era, I would say, of indigenous action Everything from coming out of the boarding schools, coming out of state-ordered extermination policies, sadly, coming out of forced relocation like the Long Walk and, and the Trail of Tears. And we've been really engaged in a new form of asserting our rights, asserting our dignity, and letting people know we're here. This includes the American Indian movement of the 1960s. And, you know, the 60s were just this bubbly incredible time period where so many waves of consciousness were flowing through humanity and indigenous peoples were no exception. We had the American Indian movement. We had the longest walk. We had the occupation of Alcatraz. We had fishers in New England and the Pacific Northwest doing nonviolent civil disobedience by just fishing <laughs> what they've been fishing for thousands of years. And it's been really quite beautiful what, what has happened in the past century. What about Standing Rock? How does how is that playing out today? I think Standing Rock has absolutely defined indigenous action uh, within this millennium. We have shown the world that we are capable of articulating a message and reaching a global audience. We were simply trying to protect the very thing that not only gives indigenous peoples life, but all of us life, and that's water. And in a way, in a big way, that's exactly what the Winnemum Wintu are doing today with the run for salmon. Chapter 5, The Run for Salmon. Hey, the water's leaving now. Bye. Goodbye. See you guys. It's September, already a warm day with the promise of getting hotter. The Run for Salmon starts out at Segorite on a dirt trail that winds through low hills full of chaparral. Over two days, we'll walk a total of 27 miles. We look out at the Carquinas Strait, where the San Francisco Bay narrows before it opens up again. All life is sacred. Water is life. Water is medicine. Water is sacred. An elder named Wounded Knee, Dale Campo, is here. He's Miwok from the Sierra Foothills, one of many allies who support the Winnemawintu on the run for salmon. Wounded Knee is what's known as a long walker, 
and for much of today, he will walk at the front of the group. He earned the title in 1978 when Native American activists marched across the country to protest policies that took away indigenous rights. The battle must go on to protect something that's very sacred to everybody that lives on this earth as earth people. At times, the run feels festive. People are chatty, they joke around a lot. But when we're actually walking, the group is often serious, like in a prayer. We walk at a steady pace. Hand drums and ceremonial songs keep us focused. The group is often single file as it winds its way through urban neighborhoods. Even walking through these areas is it's, um, it's putting step by step, like even if it's not like the, the prettiest part all the time, you know, just by stepping on the land, you, you have a different relationship. Stephanie Dodaro is in her mid-40s, of mostly European heritage, but traveled cross-country with indigenous activists a few years ago. She says walking in prayer is a different way to walk on the land. You, you put sweat equity into that. You become bonded with it in a, in a different way. And so you get to appreciate it more as, as the end result. Out here, her walking prayer focuses on the run for salmon's goals. You know, I think about salmon. I think about the water. I think about everyone has to drink the water. You know, everyone who's affected by, you know, the, everything that's happening in our environment. The land we're on is pretty built up. The railroad hugs the shore for a ways. There's military and industrial development, including a CNH sugar plant and a shell refinery. Also a lot of housing, sidewalks, cars, strip malls, concrete. Winnemum Wintu Chief Kaline isn't walking with us, but she checks in regularly by car. At one point, she takes note of the surroundings. It's incredible because this should be marshland. This should all be tules. It should be like a, almost like the Everglades. We stand on the street. Cars whip by. She looks out at the boxy houses and wide streets and laments the thoughtless development. It's like this is such a sensitive estuary that is critical to the salmon in their journey to the northern rivers. The houses everywhere, they've diverted the water system so that the springs don't come up here anymore. And, you know, this is called uh, modern living, you know, but with no sense of where is appropriate to live. And this is what uh, modern living did not consider. It did not consider what salmon needed. The beauty of salmon is the way they travel vast distances across diverse habitats to fulfill their destiny, to breed the next generation. Before we move on, let's review how it would go if you were an adult salmon. After feeding in the wide Pacific Ocean for a few years, you'd start the long journey back to where you were born. You'd first pass into inland waters through one small opening under the Golden Gate Bridge. Then you'd head east through the San Francisco Bay before coming to the place where two great rivers meet, the Sacramento and San Joaquin. They form what's called the Delta, 
once a prolific feeding ground for all kinds of fish. Through it and beyond, you do your best to smell your way back to the place where you'd been born. All of the human rerouting of water might confuse your sense of direction. But if you manage to follow the Sacramento River, about as far as you could get is Shasta Dam. When it was first built, people told stories of salmon hurling themselves against the dam as they tried to jump past. If you're a salmon today, your DNA might tell you to push forward, but you'd be stuck. There's no way to make it to Winnemumwintu homelands on the McLeod River, where your salmon relatives once abundantly spawned. Back on the run for salmon, we walk through nicely manicured neighborhoods. With their footsteps, the walkers want to wake people up to the plight of salmon and to raise awareness about threats to water and their habitat. Here's how Michael Preston puts it. It feels like I'm doing my, my purpose in life. You know, this is my job as a dancer and as a, as a Winnemum Wintu man and human being um, to speak up for salmon and water and the land and indigenous ways, indigenous life ways and, and the spirituality of it all and speak up on behalf of all that and the best we can anyways. To bring the salmon back, Michael says the Winnemum Wintu need a lot of help. We need everything's help. We need the salmon's help, we need the birds' help, we need the trees' help, we need the rain's help, we need the wind's help, we need Mother Earth's help, we need the fire's help, everything, basically, because that's the, the time of, that's the time right now. The indigenous people have been saying that for a long time, not just us, but around the world, you know, but about what time it is, and it's not looking very great, and that's not a non-optimistic point of view. We are very optimistic, that's why we're doing this. He's optimistic, but Chinook salmon in this watershed are struggling. Scientists estimate the number of adults that return to spawn is one-tenth or less than what it was historically. To understand more about the habitat where we now walk, I consult with one of California's foremost salmon experts. Okay, this is Peter Moyle. I'm a professor emeritus at the University of California, Davis, working with fish. Peter Moyle tells me the landscape in and around the Bay Area creates a special environment with a brackish mix of fresh and ocean water, ideal for migrating salmon. You can see on the map here, this is Susan Bay. Then you go down over here, you're in the Carquinez Straits. The Carquinez Straits are so amazing because it's this narrow canyon that then flows into San Francisco Bay and then the water goes out the Golden Gate. So it creates an incredibly complex estuary. Salt water is denser than fresh water. So if you think about your chemistry class, they're usually separated out. But these are tidal waters connected to the ocean. The moon's gravity pulls them up and down. It mixes the fresh and salt water together And that creates a kind of between space where salmon can transform to become either salt or freshwater fish, depending on whether they're coming or going from the ocean. The mixing also helps to produce a rich food source for juvenile salmon. So the whole system 
you could argue, was set up to be a salmon production system. It just did everything it possibly could to make, make life good for these juvenile salmon. But today, this estuary is not what it once was. Development along the waterway and competing demands for where the water goes has disrupted its natural balance. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. When we return, producer Judy Silver continues the story. We'll follow the salmon run ceremony on a bridge in Martinez, California, as the meditation walk continues. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining, we've been listening to another installment in a special series called A Prayer for Salmon. This week, producer Judy Silver is taking us on a sacred ritual, a walking meditative prayer ceremony to bless the salmon run. Now, as we get back, the group is gathered outside on a bridge in Martinez, California. walking through this residential area for a little bit and then this part of the walk is where we're going to cross the bridge as well. By early afternoon, we're crossing okay. over the Benicia Martinez Bridge in the eastern section of the Carquinas Straits. The group steps onto a pedestrian walkway. The bridge shakes and hums from the force of cars. It's unbearably loud. The walkers sing, but the noise drowns out their songs. At the center of the 1.2-mile bridge, they stop. They put faces to protective slats, look out at the murky gray water, and say silent prayers for the salmon. I've always welcomed the sight of the Bay Area's waters from a bridge like this. Even with all the development around it, the water inherently gives you a sense of freedom. 
like you're touching something ground. But as I walked the ground next to the bay, it starts to sink in that salmon must somehow navigate their way through these less than pristine waters. On the Benicia Martinez Bridge, Becca, the woman charged with keeping the Run for Salmon group moving, says it's time to wrap up their prayers. And then notes that's a funny thing to say. We cross to the other side of the bridge and go down a small slope. Tell me where we are. Uh, we are in the petroleum district in Martinez. We just crossed the waterway into the petroleum district. Gary Thomas is a Pomo ceremonial song leader from Lake County, about two hours north of where we are now. I am a descendant of the LM Indian colony as well as the Habanapo people, which is my mother's people, which is uh, north of here in uh, Lake County, which we would call Kayabatin, which is big water. He's here with his son, Gerald. They met Chief Kaline Sisk a few years back. The first run for salmon, they came for just a few days. Now they stay and help out the entire two weeks. They often walk at the front of the group where they sing song after song from Pomo country. What were you thinking when we crossed the water? Well, the beauty of the ceremony and the song carries us, but then you, you just can't help but see the devastation. You know, the tankers in the, in the, in the, in the water and the, all of the contaminants that's going through the bay. Contaminants he knows are harmful to salmon. We see black smoke floating into the air. It's from the nearby Shell refinery, one of five in the Bay Area. Together, they make up about a quarter of California's total refining capacity. America needs to wake up because this is really what's making us sick. I mean, indigenous people as well as every human being on the face of the earth is suffering some kind of a sickness result of, of all of the petroleum extraction and everything that's here in this, this area. It's uh, kind of depressing. So. Later, I will turn to local indigenous leaders to learn more. They will speak to me about the oil spills and polluted water that make their way into the bay. It's clear none of this is good for anyone, including salmon. The next morning, we continue to head east, doing our best to follow the salmon's migration path. There's no trail along the water, so we walk inland a bit. If this were 200 years ago, we would see herds of deer, antelope, and elk, along with the Ohlone and Bay Miwok people who fished and hunted on this land. Instead, we pass strip malls, gas stations, and tract housing. At different points, the nearly 4,000-foot-high Mount Diablo comes into view. In Spanish, Diablo means devil. But this was a sacred mountain to the native people of these parts, held as the birthplace of the world. The sun low, a small convoy of support cars, encourages us with honking and yelling as we finish out the day. 
awesome. <laughs> we walk through downtown Pittsburgh. Here, you can feel the layers of history that helped shape California's path, where the needs of settlers took priority over those of nature and salmon. During the gold rush, fortune seekers passed through this town on their way to the mountains. Behind us, in the foothills of the sacred Mount Diablo, companies started mining coal. At a small park near the water's edge, Chief Kaleen gathers the group in a circle. We can see the meeting place of the two great rivers, the Sacramento and San Joaquin. Here, salmon canneries operated for more than 80 years. But it's the river of seven major rivers, Mm. plus a lot of tributaries that create this water behind us. And of those rivers are many different peoples, many different tribes, uh, beliefs, songs, dances, all the way down to here. To the person next to her, she passes a wooden salmon, a symbol of what they're here for. As it goes around the circle, people speak about their experiences on the walk. Lashawn Ohlone leader Karina Gould takes the salmon in her hand. I'm so thankful that in my lifetime that we are able to see this happen, mm-hmm. that we're able to see um, many different nations come together and tribes come together, the Winnemum and the Ohlone creating that relationship, recreating that relationship, the ongoing relationship together, to bringing the salmon people together all along the waterways. The salmon continues to make its way around the circle. Those who touch it express sadness, sorrow, dreams, and hope. The salmon will carry those emotions the whole 300-plus miles to the Winnemum-Wintu homelands on the McLeod River. Whew, that's a lot. Uh, so much goodness, know that's uh, coming through you and coming up through this grounds. That was Judy Silber reporting with The Spiritual Edge at KALW Public Radio. The team that brings us a prayer for salmon includes the editors, Loretta Williams and Jeb Sharp, producers, Adriana Rodriguez and Deborah Kroll, Katie McClutchen in research, and Donia Abdelhamid, fact checker. The sound engineers, Tarek Fauda and Chris Agusa, and photographer, Tom Levy. Additional information about this special series can be found in this week's show notes. At the end of this episode, we heard Ohlone leader Karina Gold reflect on the alliance and relationship building that's happening as Native people come together to protect the water and the salmon. And it made me wonder, who are the salmon people? Coming up, Daryl Hilaire, a member of the Lumi Nation, explains why so many tribal and non-tribal people are joining this movement and effort to save the salmon. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. We come from water. Every human being comes from water. It's the sacred gift of life. And the rivers themselves, uh, uh, without rivers, we wouldn't have salmon, we wouldn't have trees, we wouldn't have all living things because water sustains us, you know, and the gift of life comes from water, each and every one of us, and all living things are born out of water. 
David Hilaire is a member of the Lumi Nation. He is also the founder of a media production and leadership institute, Setting Sun Productions. It's located in Bellingham, Washington, in the homeland of the Lumi people and Coast Salish Territory. Hilaire is overseeing a number of projects, and they all have a common thread, using the power of storytelling to bring Native people together to raise awareness, cultivate leadership, and protect what he calls their sacred obligation. The inspiration of his work, he traces back to his great-grandfather, which is where our conversation begins. My great-grandfather formed a song and dance group uh, around 1900 because he's seen the amount of change occurring in our homeland here in the uh, Salish Sea. So he took upon himself to go out and educate people about this place that we live in and, the, and what is sacred to our people and what is important for our life way. And it all ends up being about salmon because salmon is central to our way of life. And he started that work in 1900. And the tradition's been carried on since then through today across six generations. What is the Salmon People Project? The Salmon People Project uh, came up as a result of my being on the Tribal Council for the Lummi Nation and witnessing the change, the very palpable change in our people uh, when salmon returned. And I could see it in the people's eyes. I could see it in the stories that were shared and the amount of uh, teachings that were passed on from uh, the old people to the young people that were helping uh, with the harvest and uh, sharing in the abundance of salmon in our community. So I decided to uh, start documenting it with film uh, those things that occur to our people. I let the world know that, hey, uh, we're telling the story of the salmon people. And uh, immediately other tribal people up and down the Pacific coast said, hey, we're salmon people too. So I got really interested and started following up on these contacts. Salmon people uh, expanded rapidly to include uh, tribes in California, Northern California, on the Klamath River. It included the Alba people over in the Olympic Peninsula who were successful in removing a dam from their river so that their salmon can return. And for the first time in, I think, 13 years, the Alba people are going to go fishing and be one with the river and the salmon once again. And so we also include, uh, just this year, a leader from the Pebble Mine controversy on Bristol Bay where they stopped the allowance of a permit for a gold and copper mine to come in and be dug and destroy salmon habitat there. But also tribes along the Columbia and Snake River where they're really actively trying to remove dams from their rivers so that they can they can fish once again. Mm. As you describe that, it really brings to mind the controversy around efforts to try to stop the raising of the Shasta Dam. And it sounds like from what you're describing that other Native people, salmon people, have been effective in getting the dams removed. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you learned? How did that happen? Well, it happened uh, because the people, especially women, never gave up. 
Chairwoman Frances Charles of the Elba Nation, she uh, spoke to our young people that we gathered. She said, you know, it only took us a hundred years, so never give up on what you believe in. A hundred years it had taken us to get those dams out. A hundred years our ancestors had fought. It was the women at that time that went back to D.C. and fought for what we had fought for, for what you're fighting for right now. They told us that it would not happen, and it happened. It's those kinds of messages that we want to get out and serve as an inspiration to other people that are doing work in that manner, you know, where there seems like it's insurmountable odds that they face. But uh, if you believe in something uh, with enough strength and fortitude, you can make things happen. And, and that's happening, you know. So I just want to bring them together and amplify their work so that there's more hope built for other people and they're doing uh, both tribal and non-tribal. So it's not just removing dams and restoring rivers and, and bringing the forest back to life and, and try to do as much as we can for the, I think, the lifeblood of all of us, which is rivers. And they carry that force to sustain all of us if we just allow it to be what it is, you know, which is free. I read on your website at settingsunproductions.org about the tribal creation story. And I was really taken by the way the salmon are talked about. Our relationship to the salmon started with the creation story. Before we were here, the animals met and decided that they needed to help us. And that's when salmon stepped forward and said, I will give myself. And that is when the ancient covenant started. And now our brother is, is suffering. Yes, I have. And, and yes, we're hearing it today from the person that you were quoting is uh, Shannon Wheeler, the leader from the Nez Perce Nation. You know, the gift of life, you know, is what he's talking about. And the salmon gave its life for us so we can live. But now it's time to give back, you know. So it's the whole idea of gratitude. It's the whole idea of sharing, you know. And it's such a simple thing, humble thing, but very sacred in that if we learn how to do that, I think we have a better chance at our own existence when you think about it, that if we, if we learn how to share, we're going to be, we're going to be okay, you know, but if we just continue to accumulate and live in this selfish manner, it's not sustainable. Can you talk to me a little bit about what this growing movement looks like? Well, the climate crisis that we're in the middle of, the growing uh, gap between the rich and the poor, it just goes on and on, nuclear war, all of that, it's telling us that we need each other. It, it tells us that the only way that we really truly can respond is if we unite, you know, not in isolation, tribal versus non-tribal. We can model a behavior such that it calls uh, for unity and we act on unity, then they'll learn what true leadership is about, you know. But if, if we just kind of do it in isolation, I, I think we'll all be running uphill. As you're talking about that, we're living in a time now with a presidential administration and interior department led uh, by a member of the Native community. Have you seen change under this leadership? Well, I think I see uh, a tribal leader uh, taking a stand. So 
standing with her and supporting her any way that we can and making sure that uh, when these issues come up that we're there with her, you know, because it's going to take community action as well as policy change, as well as actually real reallocation of money to really be effective. There's so many layers of action that you just described for the young people that you're trying to motivate, the young people that you're investing in and trying to create ways for them to engage so that they are not hopeless. I'm curious how they are seeing Native people in leadership positions and whether there have been recent events or actions that continue to strengthen their resolve to calling for the changes that you're describing. Yeah, we uh, we include the youth in everything we do. We have six young people, college age, that are actually going to universities, but also work here full time. And we bring them along. We uh, stand behind them as we promote their voice and bringing their voice together with other young voices so that they're heard, you know. So that's kind of the first step as we learn more and more about what is going on in this world. I think those voices will will strengthen and they'll um, actually have more motivation to learn about the history here, you know. We understand that there's been a lot of things done wrong and the annihilation of our people, the genocide of our people over time. And then now we feel as we acknowledge that and move forward that we also also have a lot to share that is uh, reveals a, a lot of wealth that we still have amongst our people the connection with uh, all living things, the practices of our indigenous values make us very wealthy people. And uh, that's being taught at the same time. I understand that one of the programs that you have is actually a podcast in which the young people are creating programs that are exploring what it means to be young and indigenous. The whole thing about identity is... uh, really not talked about too much in the greater society, but you look at our young people and they're looking for something, you know, they're looking for their place or their identity. Well, we thought we'd put this together so we could have our young people explore those very same questions and then also realize that they really do have a lot to offer. And uh, we encourage that. Do you learn from them? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Education is kind of like a a ladder. But then when you think about um, with with no salmon and no connection to the water because of lack of salmon, those stories and that wisdom, the opportunities to pass that on is diminishing. And so we see that. That's an alarm, you know. The salmon's the miner's canary because of that, you know. the, the, The time with elders, the time with family, the time of those fishers that really understand the water and, and the salmon and and everything connected to the water, that's not uh, shared as often as it used to be. Like in my generation, you'd fish from June till October, and, and now it's, it's sparse, you know, it's far and few between. As you're describing kind of in contrasting your experience growing up with young people today and the way they are talking about embracing and 
challenging, maybe even some notions about what it means to be, to use the title of your podcast, Young and Indigenous. I wonder how you see them engaging in the political and public discourse around land, around climate, around how we treat the waters and the salmon. Well, uh, the short videos that we've been producing, we've been bringing them to NGOs across the country, but we've also started sharing with uh, in the political circles. Olympia is our state capital, and we took our films and we went down there and hosted an event there with the uh, congressional leaders. And uh, we put our youth forward in moderating and developing prompts and uh, responding to the things that we're doing. So you just really move you know, them to those arenas as much as you can. Uh, what better learning than to, than to actually engage? You know, you'll learn from what you don't know as well as what you do know. Sure. And it sounds like it's also an opportunity to, to demonstrate leadership at a young age. Oh, yeah. The feedback was is that we are sharing stories that go to a deeper level than typically a news agency or uh a network or a documentarian from somebody that's non-tribal would do because we share the heart more than we do the mind. We share our history. We have personal questions that we're able to ask because of that. So that kind of feedback kind of tells us we're on the right track here. Do you think we're at a new kind of inflection point when it comes to raising awareness about the impact of colonialism and settler colonialism in the United States? You know, I, I could say yes with the people that we work with, but then I would have to say I don't know because uh, on one level, it seems like we are because we do have NGOs, we do have church groups, we do have universities that we engage with on this approach that we're taking. But then I always think about like a football stadium, like Seattle Stadium, and how many of these people even care about what's going on around them in the environment and salmon and water, you know, and it's probably very minimal, you know. Um, so when we get to that point, I think I can say, yeah, we're really making a difference, but we're growing our network. And now we're from Alaska to, to California. So I think we have a better shot at it, you know. How many Native peoples identify as salmon people? Yeah, that's that's really... Uh, it's not just the Winnemum Wintu. It's not just the Lumi. It's not just the yeah. folks that you've mentioned. You chose the name Salmon People for a reason. What is your sense of how big that community is? I think it's uh, probably almost every people along both the East Coast and West Coast of America. But, you know, well, in some places, the salmon's been gone for, you know, over two centuries. But there's a people that still identify as being salmon people. I have friends over on the Martha's Vineyard, uh, and they said, we're going to bring salmon back someday, you know, and it's been gone for a long, long time. But the belief is still there. Up and down the coast, we're finding every time we go to another community, they talk about salmon. They talk about what they once had. I don't think it's like limited to what we've gathered so far, which is 17 tribes. I think it's pretty much 
all peoples along any river that pours into the ocean, either on the west coast or east coast. Do you remember your great-grandfather, Frank Hilaire? Uh, no, he died in 1934, I think. Mm. And my dad sat on his lap, though. Tell me the stories that your dad shares with you. Well, he uh, he felt that uh, my great-grandfather, who still didn't speak, really speak English, you know, he spoke our, our native tongue, but that he was quite funny and he was quite entertaining. And he wanted folks to keep his fires burning in that he was a spokesperson and he was a singer and dancer that he shared with everybody, you know. So mm. um, Dad talked about that quite often. When my great-grandfather died, then his son, Joe Hilaire, picked it up. They really were... Uh, a force to share and educate uh, people about our life way. My calling now is to pass it on, you know, pass what I'm doing on to the young po folks. I feel very uh, committed to ensuring that my grandson and his friends that work here pick up these responsibilities. We always talk about treaty rights, but with those treaty rights comes a responsibility to protect and to, to share you know, and to give thanks, you know, and uh, if we start there, then we can we can argue with anybody on whatever terms that might be, whether it be political terms or you know, social media terms. If we know and understand what our inheritance is for this place that we live in, then we, we can better love the work that we're doing. Mm. What is something that you encourage people to do? If we can stand together. We got a chance, you know, but we can't give up hope on uh, ourselves. You know, we need to join together. And if we can do that, I think, you know, there, there's hope in that, you know, and we, we stand alone and we live in isolation. It, it doesn't look very good. But when I work with people of the same mind and they're not going to give up and they're going to they're going to share, I, I feel hope in that. You draw energy from them. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about spirituality for a moment and religion. When yeah. you hear those two terms in the context of your world, what, what do they what do they mean for you? Well, uh, it's it's a practice, you know, and our spiritual practices are in the winter, where we take this journey inward, and we do that in the smokehouses throughout the Coast Salish territory, in the songs that we sing and. The time that we spend together and the uh, ceremonies that we practice all is for our inner, our inner being, our wellness, you know. And we draw from each other that uh, the spirit of our ancestors, because uh, that's what they did, you know. And it's that belief that, that sustains us. So we have that, and it's not a religion, it's a practice, you know. There's no, mm. you know, organized religion in any of that, you know, your connection to the spirit is is for you to know and understand, but you share that understanding with others. And as you describe kind of the beliefs and the way you belong to each other and the rituals, it sounds like they are important threads that hold your community together. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Been going on for a long, long time.
it wasn't allowed. It was outlawed at one point back in my dad's generation. So I didn't live it, but my dad talked about it somewhat, you know. They they knew that, uh, you know, this termination was was occurring, you know, on all fronts, whether it be boarding schools or outlawing spiritual practices or stopping people from fishing. It was was an onslaught. When you would hear those stories, how did they make you feel? Growing up, then you begin to understand your own being. Like, why don't I know my language? And why am I not singing and performing, you know, like the old people? Why are we so disconnected in attending church, you know? And you have to learn through time uh, what happened to my, my parents and my grandparents in terms of that deliberate effort to, you know, kill the Indian and save the band. And here you are today channeling your great-grandfather's um, kind of mantra, keep my fires burning. Yeah, yeah. it's time to share. David Hilaire is the executive director and founder of Children of the Setting Sun. The organization includes the Salmon People Project and Children of the Setting Sun Productions. That's all for the show. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to Maureen Fiedler, our founder, and MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to the production team at The Spiritual Edge. To learn more about this week's guest, visit the show notes at interfaithradio.org. And there we'll have links to the documentary, A Sacred Obligation, as well as links to David Hilaire's group, Setting Sun Productions, if you'd like to learn more. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. As we wrap up this week's show, we are looking ahead and would love to know what show topics or ideas do you have for an upcoming episode? If you have an idea, I want to hear from you. Email me at amber at interfaithradio.org. That's amber, A-M-B-E-R, at interfaithradio.org. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are safe, I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.